Hey everyone, welcome to the latest edition of Just Getting Started. I'm your humble host, Rich Eisen. If you're new to this podcast, where you've been? We've already gotten three episodes under our belts with uh, Academy Award winner Matthew McConaughey and best-selling author and Shark Tank shark Damon John, creator of FUBU, and then Last episode, Soledad O'Brien told us some great stories about going from small market television to CNN to being a business owner herself. And the whole idea of this podcast is to make sure if there's anybody out there that is wondering about the direction of their lives, if it's been turned upside down for the pandemic, or you feel that you need to pivot, or you need to start on something, or you have an idea and you're kind of wondering how to just get started on it. Well, the origin stories of all the people that I'm going to have on this show, hopefully will give you something portable, something for you to take and implement in your own lives to try and start down that path for you to succeed, for you to go ahead and realize an idea and hopefully a dream. And my guest on today's show is one of the most prolific novelists of all time. He's Harlan Coben. And his origin story is phenomenal, and I can't wait to just get started on this podcast, so let's do it. And joining me here on Just Getting Started is a man with 75 million books in print, including Win, which came out on March 16th. He is Harlan Coben. How are you, sir? Rich, great to be here. How's it going? What a pleasure to have you here on this show. What a pleasure. And the amount of pleasure that you've given me and so many others through your writing and your storytelling. On behalf of them, I really appreciate you doing this show. So thanks. Wow. I'm ready to leave now. That's good enough for me. Yeah, I know. That's a walk-off. That's one of those. That's usually a walk-off. And as as I was saying, I thought maybe I should close with that. But you know what? I I just, uh, I like telling people whose work I enjoy exactly how I feel right off the bat. But let's start with how you, you got started. Harlan, when did you first know that you wanted to write and create? Well, first, I think this is a different maybe for most writers or maybe not. But usually when you hear this question, I've been on so many panels where there's always the writer who says, I always knew I was going to be a writer. When I was a four-month-old fetus, a pen (laughs) formed in my mother's womb, and I scratched out several sonatas while doing (laughs) it. And then they always like, when I was five years old, the children <laughs> gathered around me in the playground as they told them pirate tales of woe. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I got beaten up in my neighborhood for that. And I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. It wasn't a tough neighborhood. So I came to it later. I was in college at Amherst College. I worked a summer in the Costa del Sol of Spain, watching American tourists. Uh, not because I'm a brilliant linguist, but because um, my grandfather owned the travel agency. It was nepotism plain and simple. Yes. But this is the early to mid 80s and Americans on vacation, I was sort of watching them, were acting so bizarrely. They'd be like very frightened of travel. It's all the cliches of American. And I said, wow, someone should write a book about it. And I did. I came back my senior year of college. I tried getting a professor to let me do it as a thesis, but that didn't go over. And I just did it. I sat in my room at college and I wrote an entire novel and it was crap. It was pompous and self-absorbed and pretentious and all the things that a first novel is. But then I got the writing bug from that, like a virus. And I started to write what I loved, which uh, you know you can call mystery, crime, thrillers. I call it the novel of immersion. 
the book you take on vacation, but you'd rather stay at home because you, you want to stay in your room just because you, you, you have to know what happens to Wynn and Myron and all the rest of the people. Yeah. And and before we, I guess, delve into that a little bit, let, let me linger on the start here. So your grandfather owned a travel agency, and I guess to make some coin to get started in a way in college in Amherst, you decided to what do you mean you were watching people on vacation? What is what is what sort of <laughs> what sort of gig is that, Harlan? I mean well, you know. sort of do you remember I mean I guess it still goes on, but there were these kind of American bus tours. Sure. And so a group of fifty would fly in and I, my job was to watch them when they were in the Costa del Sol of Spain. So I'd pick them up at the airport and I would tour them around. And I was much too young and really stupid and didn't know what I was doing. So like we would travel. I remember we would take this eight-hour bus ride to Granada. And this is how Americans were on vacation. So they would go to me, you know, Harlan, like two hours ago, I was looking through my binoculars and I saw this small white church way in the distance. What was the name of that church? And expect you to know. And I would just make it up. Iglesia del Almuerzo, which means church of lunch, you know, anything just that would please them. And so the experience is kind of like, wow, these people are really acting strangely while they're on vacation. They're very nervous. And I thought it'd be cool to write a book about this hotshot tour guide and his humorous clients. But of course, that didn't really work out. That's why I was pompous and pretentious and and self-absorbed, which a lot of first novels are. Well, I mean, I, I remember those tours because, you know, you and I are somewhat similar. Uh, you're a, a Newark native, right? But now you're yes. in Livingston, right? So that's exit 14 on the turnpike. I was exit 13 from Staten Island across the Gothels Bridge on the other side. And my dad was a French teacher and he took his French class on tours in Paris and Quebec. And I remember these tours they would come with like their own tote bags and things like that. Uh, oh, yeah. And so I know what you're talking about. If I could go back in a time machine, Harlan Coben, right now, and told that kid who is pointing out what church might have been on the, on the horizon uh, on their tour, that you would be a world-class novelist with novels all over the globe and television shows and films based on these novels all over the globe, literally – you know, I, I would have to explain to you what Netflix Poland was at the time. But, you know, if if I had told you that's what you would become, what would you have said? I, I wouldn't have believed it. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you, you talk about having goals in your life or whatever else. When I was young, I played college basketball, Division yeah. three. I was a Jewish All-American. I don't want to brag. I was a Jewish All-American. They found five Jews who played college basketball that year and, and made a team It was me, Heshi, and Moisha, and two guys from Yeshiva, I think, were um, <laughs> the team back then. But I, when I was young, that was my dream, was I would one day be an NBA basketball player. But as a writer, my dreams were always extraordinarily modest and incremental. So, you know, my dream originally was, if I could just have one novel published, just one time have a novel published, and maybe one time walk past a bookstore and see the book there, that would be it. That's mm. That's all I would need. And then it's like, well, I could just have two, two novels published just to prove it wasn't a fluke. Well, you know, if I could just scratch out a living, doesn't have to be a good living, just enough that I could do this. Well, maybe I could just scratch the bottom of the New York Times bestseller just one time for one week. So, right. you know, it, it, it went up incrementally, you know, and eventually like, oh, can I get number one on the list? And I think that was the smart way of going about it. So I enjoyed sort of every stage staying ambitious, but also staying satisfied. That can't be easy to do, though, right? 
staying ambitious, but staying satisfied. That's sort of a unique way to live in the moment while you're feeling the pressure to continue succeeding and also coming up with ideas that are fresh. I mean, that 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 can't be simple, Harlan. Where do you think you got that from? First of all, I came up, my first book came out in 1990. My first New York Times bestseller was 2001. So it was 11 years later. So it wasn't overnight. It was right. 10 books. But part of it was in those days, this is sort of before Amazon and really the internet, I was too dumb to know how low level I was. You know, I, I didn't have an Amazon ranking to check. I didn't have anything compared to. So I thought I was still the cat's ass, even though I wasn't doing, if I had realized what a pimple on the buttocks of publishing I was, I probably would have lost my mind and gotten discouraged. But, you know, I had a book in the store and then I was a paperback original author, but with Dell, which is a big name in a big house. And I wasn't making any money, but I thought, you know, this is, this is kind of cool and how it goes. And I didn't really... It's one of the reasons I tell people, stay off the internet and stop checking your rankings and all that stuff. That naivete, I think, really helped me stay focused. And the other thing is, I have nothing else in my life, Rich. I mean, um, <laughs> I have my family, yes. and I have and I have the books. It's not like, you know, I'm, I, I collect, I, I don't cook, I don't do, I don't have a hobby, I don't collect, I don't know, vases or whatever it is. This is all I have. So that fear, frankly, I would have to find a real job or something like that is a motivating factor. I mean, I know it's in your case too, Rich, right? I mean, how much is the fear that you have to one day wake up and do something that you don't love for a living, keep you doing what you're doing? Well, it's funny, you know, Harlan, before you popped on, I was chatting with some of uh, my fantastic producers of this podcast, and they were asking me some questions about you know, that the taping of this is going on in free agency and actually on the day in which Wynn is coming out, your 33rd book. And they're asking me, you know, like, are you sick and tired of talking about sports? And I'll say, I just tilted my camera up. I'm like, no, there's the roof that's over my head. <laughs> you, you know, thankfully, I get to talk about that stuff. I live in the toy department, you know, and yep. I, I wouldn't say there's any fear, but there is a singular desire to stay current and also uh, to be honest since you're you know you've been brutally honest so far too to be somebody that I want people to spend time with you know like I'm talking on this podcast I talk three hours a day on my show I'm fortunate to have NFL Network you know if you don't want to spend time with me you know if I'm an asshole you know why why so I'm I'm trying to be myself best I can and just believe in what I'm doing but I find it fascinating of you saying in a way that technology will deny you the ignorance is bliss way of just ignoring all the noise and what your rankings might be. Just keep your head down and keep putting out the product that you believe in that you think is quality, right? I mean, did I get that right? Yeah, that's, ex that's exactly right. There's also, it's a strange thing when you're a writer because you have both you're, you're, you're crippled with anxiety and insecurity and self-doubts. You know, I suck. I'm not good at this. The imposter syndrome. While at the same time, you have the hubris to think, I'm going to write something and talk to you straight for 400 pages, and you're going to pay me <laughs> to, to, have that, to have the joy of listening to me. Right. And that's a complete contradiction. And yet every writer who produces pages that I know feels the same way. It's something you kind of have to battle through every day. 
if you have a writer on your show who thinks he's good, I guarantee you they suck. Only bad writers think they're good. So that's part of what what fuels me. Uh, this the idea that if I run out of ideas, I'm going to have to now work at a pharmacy and sell pens and, and you know have a real job. And I'm not I'm not qualified to do anything else. This is all I can do. Who was the one who told you your first manuscript? Just to circle back to that, wasn't any good, or you you knew it yourself, or just the fact that it didn't sell or anything like that. So how did you glean that your first attempt at becoming a novelist wasn't up to par? Oh, well, you know, it's a number of rejections. And then as time goes on, you start to be able to look at your work more critically, sometimes in a negative way that's not fair to you also. I mean, a lot of people will, I, I don't like to read my old books. The comparison I make is, do you remember there was that essay you wrote in college you thought was brilliant, right? And you and you find it now and you read it and go, wow, how did I even pass this course? Right. Because it's not that it's bad. You see all the seams and you don't like yourself 20 years ago or 30 years ago or however long. It's the same thing with books. You know, when I'm doing these Netflix adaptations, I was recently reading one that was you know, almost 20 years old and I'm like, wow, you know, this kind of sucks. And then, oh, okay, it's all right. It's got a certain energy, but you're very hard on your old stuff. I think that's just, again, part of the of the process that that makes you right did you ever get the rejection and think that you're on the wrong path did that ever happen you know i was so practical i was working the whole time i was writing i never dreamt that i would make a living at it. i really didn't i hoped to be a guy who had a book in a store and could say i was a published novelist while working full-time for whatever else i was going to do i was very practical about the whole thing and i don't re re recommend it by the way i don't recommend those who want to write that are listening to us right now, quit your job. Um, most writers that I know, most successful writers, were working at the time that their first novel or two or even three um, were published. If it takes you 12 months to write a novel, if you have all the time in the world, it shouldn't take you more than 13 or 14 months if you're still working full time. It's the goldfish bowl effect of writing. So I was more practical about it, I think, than a dreamer, which is kind of unusual for, for me, but it worked. So, the, and the job that you had while you were just getting started was the travel agency gig that your grandfather had owned. Yeah. From 84 when I graduated college until 1992. That's what I did, eight years. Damn. And is it true that Dan Brown went to Amherst with you too, that you were, were you roommates? We were in the same fraternity. Okay. They got rid of the fraternities in, in 84. <laughs> the last year. Okay. By coincidence, the year I graduated, um, they got rid of it. Dan and I were fraternity brothers. So while I may have sold all those books you were saying, I'm not even the number one best-selling <laughs> author of my own fraternity at Amherst. <laughs> A small little Amherst college at the time. So. <laughs> Is any of the sadistic stuff in the Da Vinci Code born out of hazing from that? Harlan? <laughs> Not, no. Our, it was extraordinary. In fact, our fraternities back then, don't ask me how, were actually, which is kind of modern. We had women in our, in our they were co-ed fraternities because Amherst had been all men. Oh. And when they admitted women, they, they were some kind of suit. Women had to be members of the fraternity. So they were extraordinarily mellow fraternities there was no hazing or anything like that it was more like a social club so my wife was my fraternity brother it's your fraternity brother and your fraternity sister or sorority brother i don't even that is a pretty wild so okay so then you started the myron bolitar series now that was based on what trying to combine 
some of what you knew from your desire to be a basketball player or your hopes and then combining it with your obvious at the time current ability to write and pen some fascinating stories. Is that basically what it's born out of? Yeah, I had written two standalone novels before that, both of which were published to no great acclaim or sales. Okay. And then my agent at the time actually came up with the idea. At the time, this is why also the other rules don't follow trends unless you really believe in them. But my agent at the time thought a sports-oriented mystery involving a lead that was female. At the time, Sue Grafton was coming up and Sarah Bretzky. And I went home thinking about that, and I was like, I really, you know, I, I don't think I can have a series right now. I'm not good enough yet to write a series the lead character who is female. I've done it since, but not back in those days. And Myron was just there. I, uh, Myron Bolotar, who's my series hero, he was me with a lot of wish fulfillment. Writers don't like to ad- admit that, but he, I played college basketball. He's a lot better. He's funnier. He's smarter. He's stronger. He's uh, you know better with the line, better with the fist. Um, I haven't beaten two areas. I'm a better dancer. I'll demonstrate later. And I'm slightly wiser in the ways of women. This is no great shakes. We're talking about like gonorrhea being better than syphilis. We're not talking about two geniuses here. <laughs> but I'm you know slightly wiser in the ways of women. I've had uh, my wife that has been with me for a long time, and Myron's love life for the most part has been a disaster. So that was sort of how the series began. Okay. And then obviously when the series takes off and it becomes immensely successful, was there any concern that for you or you felt like you had to try something else or was there a concern by doing something else? Certainly since, as you just pointed out, your first two attempts at something else before it wasn't as successful as you wanted. Was there any self-doubt there after you had obviously already hit it with this idea? Well, Myron actually didn't hit it. So uh, the first four Myrons were all paper, they call paperback originals. That's when they come out mass market paperback. And because we're being completely honest and open with each other. Please. My first Myron book, I received an advance of $5,000. Damn. By the time my fourth came out, and I don't want to brag on the air, I was up to (laughs) (laughs) $6,000. Overnight success. (laughs) I used to be embarrassed to talk about money for one reason. Now I'm embarrassed to talk about money for the other reason. But don't like to admit that very often. But what the heck? We're, we're trying to give people inspiration here. Yeah. So what I tried to do when I wrote Myron is I love the classic detective, the Raymond Chandler, Robert B. Parker kind of detective. But what I thought was lacking there a little bit, they didn't have the plots that were twisty enough that had the twist endings, which I could do with the standalones. I was trying to combine those, those two worlds. And... After seven Myron books, and the growth was sort of nice and slow, but it reached the stage where the eighth was not going to be a huge breakout, no matter what, because Barnes & Noble or whoever it was at the time that was big looks in their computer and they say, well, you sold X amount and X plus two, X plus four. We're not going to order four times X for your new book and push it. And I had this idea about a man and a woman who are happily married. The wife is murdered. Eight years pass. He can't get over her death. He gets an email. He clicks the hyperlink and he sees his dead wife walk by on a street cam. And I love this idea. Myron couldn't tell it. So I wrote a book called Tell No One. And that was my breakout book. That Mm -hmm. book sold more than the the other seven Myrons times 10. That was the first New York Times bestseller and what changed my life. And that changed your life. How did that feel? I mean, how did that feel for you? It was, you know, it was great. I mean, let's face it. It was great. But here's the thing. I was 39. My fourth child was born the day that I hit the New York Times bestseller list. I always remember it, July 11, 2001. 
So I was at least, you know, I, I, I was steady in my life. I was married. I had four kids all on the age of seven. I couldn't go nuts. But any kind of success like that really does mess with your head. There's just no question about it. So when I see these young athletes or these young rock stars or these young actors that all of a sudden are hit with tremendous fame, which no writer gets that kind of fame. We get something, but not like that. It's a wonder any of them survive. It really will turn your head and mess with your head. It's hard to write after that. You start second guessing yourself. Is the next book going to be as good and all that? Um, so yeah, I, it, it was great and it's been great. It changed my life in the all positive. But that's something to be wary of. It really was. And I think, you know, to try and touch upon a little bit more there, Harlan, it's just that I, I find many people are sometimes a little, because of what you just said, afraid maybe too strong of a word, wary of success and thus don't even try that what happens if, you know, this does work, what next, what will be next? I don't even know what's, I don't even know how to make this work to begin with. So why even try? Because I don't even know what the hell's going to happen next. I, I, I genuinely think I've, I've run into a lot of people. I sometimes have to fight through that myself. So hearing you say that kind of makes me pause right there. You know, I'm sure in your career, you had that moment when you were going from a sort of smooth tr line, and then you just jumped up a lot. I mean, there was a moment in your life, in your career, too. So did you have those same sort of uh, Oh, God, yeah. I was in small market TV, you know, just to, I guess, <laughs> dovetail a little bit what you said. I was in Redding, California, which is like market 130 out of 205 metered markets. And my, not to brag, my starting salary was 675 an hour. And I worked there for three months. My news director calls me in, sits me down. This is KRCR-TV, the ABC affiliate known as the spirit of the North State was the phrase of the, of the TV station, Harlan. And I sat down. He calls me in and he tells me that my probation period is over. Had no idea I was on probation. It was like <laughs> Animal House. It was secret probation without the double. And he... He slides across the table a folded up piece of paper that was stapled at the top. So opening it up took a little bit of sort of like an envelope, please type. Yes, there was a yes, there was a little bit of drama and oh, I had no idea what it was. And it was a piece of paper congratulating me on my raise, not to brag again, from 675 to 695 an hour. Did you spend that all in one place? Oh man, you... I went out and I bought a <laughs> Snickers, you know, it was phenomenal, you know, just amazing. I, but that's where I went from sending a tape to a headhunter saying, you know, I'd left my resume in the copy machine. That was not a good day in my career. Uh, when my news director found it and left it on my desk with a post-it note to say, you left this in the copy machine. And, uh, I sent a tape to a headhunter and ESPN saw it. And I was on sports center by age 26. Wow. Literally like that. And then all of a sudden, every single person who I was idolizing, to be honest, and who I was emulating on the air, which is another phrase of ripping off, you know, as we do in our business, suddenly they're my colleagues. I'm looking around the newsroom and I'm wondering, do I belong here? You know? Right. The imposter syndrome. First of all, as a fiction writer, novelist, I'm trying to get in the head of this guy 
who sits there going, how can I build up this giving an extra 15 cents a week, an hour or two? I'm going to take the paper and fold it. Where's my stapler? I need my stapler. Yes. So we have the dramatic moment of him opening. You're welcome, up, Harlan. So. You're welcome. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be a Your character. 34th novel is going to be dynamite, man. <laughs> and you know, when I was in high school, Bob Lee would, did my games. Sure. He's when, Mr. New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah, New Jersey three suburban TV when I was in when I was in high school from seventy six to nineteen eighty Bob Lee did our games he was a skinny guy with the big glasses and that was who uh, did, did the games not to throw out not to get off track it's all good your, um, no it's phenomenal but that's a, but so it's the same it is the same kind of a thing so but it's all good I mean I was on, on another panel I, I always love talking about things writers say that drive me crazy and we were asked on a panel it's like you know, uh, what's the downside of being a best-selling author? And the answer is nothing. I mean, this is the sweetest gig imaginable, being a best-selling author. And we don't deal, you know, we both know a lot of people who are famous and the downside of that, there's not much downside. If I put a hat on, no one recognizes me anywhere that I go. <laughs> so it's not like it's a problem. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm at all saying, woe is me. It's the sweetest gig in the world. No, I know. But there's an origin story. And that's part of the reason why I want to do this, that there's always doubts. There's always doors slammed closed. Yep. And it always does provide a through line that never leaves you. And I think hopefully for many people out there could be replicated, certainly in a time like this. Let's talk about the here and now when your 33rd book, and obviously fans are excited to get any book from you, but to have a character from the Myron Bolitar series and, and sort of pull back the curtain here, like what, why, why'd you decide to go in this direction for, for this book? You know, I, I always love sidekicks. I mean, you know, from Sherlock Holmes to Watson to Batman and Robin. I even like running scared with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines. Nicely I love Buddy done. Buddy. Yeah. Nice. I love any of that kind of thing going on. Uh, so when was Myron's sidekick? And he's super rich, blue blood, sociopathic, dangerous guy who was also a member of Marion Pine Valley and you know those great, great golf courses and lives in this kind of dual world. And I always think with sidekicks, less is more. I think the reason people loved Wynn was you don't want too much of them. But suddenly uh, an idea came and I said, wow, I want to try letting Wynn tell this story. And it was really actually almost too easy to get into his skin. Um, I wonder what's part of me um, has the, he's not, he's not necessarily likable. Guys love him, but he's not necessarily likable. He, he's dangerous. He, he's a vigilante. He goes too far. But this is what, what you're talking about. It's in your case, it's not just being likable. I have to want to hang with you, Rich. I mean, for right. your job to be successful, you have to be the guy that if I'm at a pub to talk in British terms and I'm listening in or I want to sit with somebody, I want to listen to them. Doesn't mean they're nice, they don't be nice guys. They have to be interesting and intriguing. And I, I hope when is that? Well, and then, you know, I, I think fans are yeah. Do you want to get the whole band back together? My brother-in-law, Scott, is easily the biggest Harlan Coben fan that I know. So I called him up. I'm like, hey, I'm going to talk to your guy today. Like, what do you want to know? And he's like, ask him when you're going to do another Myron Bolitar book and get the whole band back together. Is this sort of a gateway to that, this book, Harlan? Or you're it done could, with the I, I don't know. I mean, man plans, God laughs, as uh, Myron often quotes the old <laughs> expression. I love that one. 
when I read a book, I put everything into that particular book. If I have even a scrap of a good idea, it somehow ends up in that book. And when I finish it, it's like I just gone, I would just went 15 rounds in a heavyweight fight and I can't even lift my arms. I'm like, there will be no rematch, Howard, no Moss. <laughs> right. I will never do it again. I'm exhausted. I'm not like thinking three books ahead. I just, I can't do it. So, you know, people have been writing me thinking Myron was, when we're done, they're not. This is sort of proof. My guess is Myron will be back. The whole gang will be back. It might be from Wynn's viewpoint. It might be from Myron's viewpoint, but I really don't know. It's not the book I'm writing next, but it might be. It might be the one after that. I just, I can't predict. You're already on book 34. You're already doing that. Yeah, it's it's due pretty soon. It comes out every, <laughs> every March I come out. So I try to finish them around June or July. So um, when the pandemic hit a year ago, I was a, about halfway through or a third of the way through Win. So I'm about a halfway or a third of the way through the next book, which is a sequel to two different books. One I wrote called The Boy from the Woods, and one some of people might be familiar with called The Stranger, which was on Netflix as a as a TV series. And I didn't plan on a, on a stranger being involved in this book at all, but around page 50, all of a sudden, The Stranger just popped in. So now The Stranger is part of the story. Do you ever, again, again, I, like going back to the part of in our podcast earlier where I was asked, do I ever get tired of talking sports and i'm like no i mean i i love it you know knock on wood it puts a roof over my head do you ever just want to tap out and say i, I don't want to write a book this year i don't want to I, you know i want to do x y and z i know you said that you don't have any hobbies or anything outside of that but do you ever sit there and go like again do i got to come up with another idea again does that ever hit you sure uh, but that's part that's just part of the process i know that if i didn't do it you know part of look part of life is balance right so you know, you're balancing with your your spouse or your partner, balance with your family, balance with your eating, balance with your exercise, all those things. If I'm not writing, my life is out of balance. doesn't matter how good those other things are. If I'm not writing well, that balance teeters. That's just part of my makeup. So I need to write. Even if I'm on vacation, it's not because I don't like to relax. I'm the best relaxer in the world. This is a great job for somebody who's fairly lazy and doesn't get out very much. But if I don't wake up in the morning before the kids will wake up on vacation, and if you have college-age kids, you know that you know if you wake up at 7 a.m., you have six hours to write before they wake up. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't write, a little, I just am not happy. I'm not, I'm not where I should be. So Part of it is my makeup. Part of it, I think, is the is the is is the work ethic that I was raised with, where you have to make it like a job. I don't know if it is a job, but a plumber can't one day wake up and say, "Oh, today I can't do pipes. I just can't. I just can't do pipes." I, I feel the same way. I beat myself up a lot if I'm acting the artiste. Right. Well, I guess if you're your own boss and you can make your own hours, and then from again. What I've read in preparation for this, you can make your own office, like say a Starbucks, you know, like that could be difficult to not have the discipline, right? Right. To, to, to actually conduct the job, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a very disciplined person in too many other things, but in this, I'm disciplined. I, I need to get it done or I just don't feel right. I, I, my life is somewhat out of balance. And is it true again that you, you do work in coffee shops? I can't imagine that you have, uh, 
the concentration level to do that sort of like I'd want to be in a tank where nobody's talking. You're not hearing the grinding of beans, you know, uh, the misspelling of names on the side of a, a cup, which always happens at a Starbucks. <laughs> I'd love to see how many times Harlan has been attempted on the side of your grande. I could just say Bob and I go, I'm like, is Harlan, that- <laughs> what? Harlan, just Bob, Bob. My name is Bob. Okay. And you can spell it backwards. I don't care. Bob, Honestly, Coben, Harlan, Coben with an I, I'm sure there's been, it's been botched. So how, how do you, how do you do that? I'm a, I'm a mood writer, so sometimes I like the noise. White noise makes me focus more. There'll be times when I'm, when I'm in a coffee shop and it will be noisy and whatever else, and all of a sudden I'll realize like an hour or two hours have passed and I haven't moved and people have walked by me and they've jostled me and maybe somebody sat across from me because there was no other seat available and that's like the greatest kind of moments. But yeah, I can focus. Noise doesn't bother me. I just I need to be left alone. I don't like it. If somebody's trying to talk to me or sometimes somebody will know who I am when I'm in a coffee shop and they'll be staring at me and pretending they're not. I'm like, dude, let's just come over and say hi to each other and then move on because it's that (laughs) surreptitious look that's distracting me. And I look up and you look away. Just say, let's just say hi to one another and then move on with our lives. But outside of that, so, and I change up. It's like, uh, I say, it's like riding a horse and I ride it really hard until the horse just drops dead and then I look for another horse. So I'll change places all the time. I'll change how I do it. Sometimes trains, planes, automobiles, whatever it is that's working, I will do that until it stops working. Mostly now I'm a morning writer. I used to be a night writer when I was younger. Whatever's working, I, I just try to do. Okay. And the few minutes I have left with you here then, let me use some of this real estate on uh, on the sports world. So you're from Jersey. Does that make you a giant, a jet, Nick? What are you, Ranger? Oh, well, I do. I do cheer on for some reason both the Giants and the Jets. Okay, um, but I, I'm a Giants fan. I, I've been. A, I'm a Giants guy. In fact, this morning I was interviewed by my old pal Michael Strahan, ah! who uh, who I've known for a number of years on GMA. Now I'm so proud of how well he's done. He's going to come on this podcast in the summer. I mean, literally, what he has done from small school to Hall of Fame, and then from playing career to. Let's be honest, like the Dick Clark of his generation. It's unbelievable. Literally is the $100,000 pyramid host, as well as Good Morning America and everything else. It really is beyond remarkable and inspirational. What's yeah, straight? I, I tease him that he'll show up at the opening of a garage door. I mean, it's unbelievable how hard <laughs> that, that. that guy works. But you know, it's interesting. I golf with Michael every once in a while. Okay. And he is, of course, the nicest guy in the world and everything else. But you can sometimes see... And you talk about like other athletes. If he sees a football player who he feels has talent and is not trying hard, oh, competition. He, yeah, he's a, such a competitive guy in a healthy way. Right. It's really something. I mean, that's that's something I, I almost want to figure it out and bottle it because he's ridiculously competitive, but not at all in a nasty way. Um, and you start seeing that every once in a while when he talks about athletes he thinks have the talent and aren't doing it. He has no patience for that because he just doesn't get how. You're not working your hardest to be a great whatever it is, and he's and he's gotten better as a broadcaster. Right, he has he gets better and better. So you know. Um, so anyway, no I am a Giants fan. I'm a New York Rangers fan. But my last game I was at was March sixth of last year. I was at the Rangers game oh. when they won overtime, uh, six to five, and that was my last. I've got a picture on my uh, Instagram of me going like this as the game ends against the glass uh, after the goal is scored. So, and I, even though I'm a basketball player, I don't really like going to basketball. But you know, the Knicks have—I've tried to make the Knicks my team. It's been been not easy the last 
20 years. It sure has not. The mere mention of the owner, James Dolan, on my daily show every day, my my uh, my fellow compatriots say that I go down a Dolan wormhole. I could just get sucked into just being so irate as to the way he you know, ejects Oakley from Madison Square Garden and sticks his face in the team a little bit too much. And But I don't want to go down that wormhole with you here. Are you a Yankee or a Met? Well, there again, for some reason I grew up as a, don't ask me why, um, I was a Houston Astros fan. So now I, I cheer on both. But as I've gotten older, I've moved away from that. I cheer on both the Yankees and the Mets. Okay. And I don't, I don't care as much as I used to. You know, I'll tell you, I was an Astros fan when they lost to the Mets in 86, famous series. Mike Scott, that was a hell of a series. That NLCS was one of the all-time greats. Unbelievable. So I went to Shea Stadium when Mike Scott pitched wearing a Houston Astros jacket and sitting in the bleachers. Oh, my God. And I'm alive today. Dickie Thon hits the game-winning Dick- home run. <laughs> Dickie Thon and Alan Ashby both hit home runs that game. While the Mets were whining about Mike Scott scuffing the balls, and I'll never forget when they hit the home run. I'm standing. I went, I went with two Yankee fans, of course, hated the Mets, and the entire place is silent, and the three of us are standing up cheering. And I don't know how I walked <laughs> out of that ballpark alive to this day. And now I love the Mets. My point was when the Astros lost that series, I fell into a funk. Now we have a lot of people out there. I really fell into a funk, and then I said to myself. What the hell are you doing caring so much? And I've never let myself care that much again. <laughs> well, thank God that you survived it. I mean, your entire <laughs> success, your family, your everybody. They could have been just uh they could have all been derailed that night that Dickie Thon went yard. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't happen a lot. That Dickie Thon and Alan Ashby went yard. It wasn't you know, it wasn't the guys you expected that year. <laughs> so let's let's finish up with uh, a question that I know you probably don't have an answer to, but heck with it, I'll ask it anyway. Certainly, since it's not about volume, it's about quality. You got thirty three books out. You're already working on thirty four. You know there's going to be more. Is there a number in your mind? Fifty? Is that a, a round number or something like that? Or or is there a number in in your mind that you want to hit or anything like that? Harlan? No, I, I just I want to write as, as long as I think I'm still doing it as well as I, I possibly can. The TV stuff, which I've done a lot the last few years, yeah. has been a welcome distraction. I thought it would slow down my pace a little bit, no but. Way. Weirdly enough, it works the opposite because I'm 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 a socially adept introvert, right? So I'm in this room, but then every once in a while I like to get out and go on the set, and I'm on the set for two days. And I want to kill myself, and I come right back and I start to write harder. So they they actually work well together. They work in conjunction with one another, not and they're not taking away from one another right now. But I don't have a set number. There'll be a time I'm sure when I'll start. Uh, you know, but it's one of the great things too. I worry about athletes like. You know, I'm 59, and I can still be in my prime doing this. If someone had told me when I was, you know, 38, I'd be starting to go on the downside of doing this in a way it is for an athlete. I get that pain. It's, uh, it's something I write about a lot in the books. That pain of an athlete's light dimming. Someday, I guess that'll happen to me, but <laughs> not yet. Instead, you're the Tom Brady of novelists, Harlan. That's, That's right. What you're, I'm, gonna, you're I'm taking blood. I'm doing everything I can. To Look stay at you. In it. You're going strong. <laughs> and so, lastly, what piece of advice? What advice would you give somebody about starting right now? Well, two things. One is more direct. If you're trying to write, you have to write. Doesn't matter if it's crap. Turn off that that voice in your head that that hates what you're writing. You can always fix bad pages. You can't fix no pages. All right. So make sure you get something down and then you can always improve on it. It's like diamond mining. You grab something ugly out of the ground, but that's what's valuable. And then you shine it up and make it something worth selling. The other thing is perseverance. 
most guys just quit after a little a little while. You do need luck. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. It's true of anything you have in life. You do need some luck. But with more perseverance you have, the more luck you have. So those are the two things I guess I would tell somebody. Harlan Coben, this was uh, as as great as I was hoping it would be. We know a lot of people in common there. They said, you guys are going to hit it off. And I, I'd love to do this more often. Anytime you'd want to promote anything obviously you got a lot of stuff going on i'd be more than happy to give you my platform and just chit chat wow i've been a fan for a long time rich so this has been a real honor thank you so much i really enjoyed it man i uh, appreciate you saying that thank you win is available where all books are sold harlan coben here on just getting started well that was great i gotta tell you i was told that i would love the guy and i feel like i'm uh, i'm thick as thieves right now and um, I hope you enjoyed hearing what he had to say. If there's anybody out there that you know that's got a manuscript or is thinking about trying to start on one or what they should do if they're stuck in writer's block or they've tried it a couple of times and they don't think they've got the hang of it or will ever get the hang of it, you tell them that Harlan Coben tried twice and struck out and then got a new idea and tried five more times before he actually hit it big. 11 years if I did the actual math between him starting to write his first book and then finally getting on the New York Times bestseller list. 11 years for him to sit there and think, was he on the right path? Was he doing the right thing? And he kept at it. you know. And that's part of my concern a little bit about the concept of this podcast, even though I deep down feel like this is the right thing to do and for me to do. And even though there's so much negative crap out there in the world today, me talking positivity, does that rate Will that actually gain some traction? Do people want to actually argue as opposed to agree in this polarized world? And part of my concern is then also putting a podcast out of positivity where sometimes the actual piece of advice is stick to it. And you know that. Everybody knows that deep down that you can't give up. Don't quit. Don't have the quit in you. Don't ever want to stop and stick to it. And that's the piece of advice that you take from it. But sometimes you need to hear it from somebody that you think is so successful that they started hitting the level of success that they have right from the get-go. And that's why I want to choose origin stories. That's why I want to continue to talk about these origin stories. Because Harlan Coben started and he tried and it didn't work out. And he kept at it and then it worked out. And even with all that, he sometimes sits there and wonders if what he's doing is the right thing to do. So please take that into account if you're sitting there wondering if you're doing the right thing or if it hasn't worked out so far or you've been trying it, you feel like you've been banging your head against the wall, keep at it. Keep at it because you never know what's right around the corner. And what's right around the corner on next week's edition of Just Getting Started, my scheduled guest is none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci. We'll talk about his origin story and then obviously the here and now could not be more relevant to all of us. So I want to thank everybody for taking in this edition of Just Getting Started. And I want to thank my executive producer, Lou Pellegrino. I want to thank my coordinating producer, Zach Rosenfield. I also want to thank my friend, Robert Borowski, associate producer and engineer, Sarah McCrory, associate producer, and Joey Salvia, my audio editor. We'll see you on next week's edition of Just Getting Started. Just Getting Started.